I have a dream. I have a dream in which the valleys shall be exalted, in which God shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it. The man said this at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial. It was a glorious August afternoon last year. Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., who has brought more honors to our country, and now being awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for 1964. And we're seated at the bedside of Mahalia, who's relaxing right now. She's a little tired, she's relaxing and feeling better at the bedside of a mutual friend of ours, who's the finest gospel singer in the world, Mahalia Jackson. Dr. King, who happens to be passing through, as he does passing through, traveling 275,000 miles a year, just bringing a truth to people. Dr. King, this dream that you spoke of at the foot of the Lincoln Memorial last August of 63. When did this dream first come to you, this dream of equity? Well, this has always been my dream as far back as I can remember, even as uh, a teenager growing up, even though I lived in a southern community where segregation and discrimination were Uh, a part of our everyday lives, I always dreamed of the day that these conditions would not exist. And uh, I dreamed of a time that our nation would uh, erase this ugly problem and that we would be able to live as brothers and that the Negro could walk the earth with dignity and self-respect. So this has been uh, a dream for many, many years now. I'm thinking of people who perhaps influenced you in your growth. Your father, for one, you are co-pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church on Auburn Street, Atlanta. Your father, I imagine, was an influence in your life, is. Yes, he has been and still is a great influence in my life. My father has been uh, very active in the civil rights struggle and in the civil rights movement all along. And uh, he has uh, always Uh, made it clear that he could never adjust himself to segregation, and that influenced me from the very beginning. And uh, he is still a great influence. He is an active supporter of all that I attempt to do, and I'm sure that uh, part of the dream grew out of the dream that my father has always had. I'm thinking in reading about you, certain memories you have of riding with your father, dining cars, there was the curtain separated white from black. You remember these memories, I suppose, are vivid, of going into a shoe store and your father always being there telling you something. Yes, yes, these are very vivid uh, uh, things in my memory right now. Uh, The one thing I always remember and always will remember about my father is the fact that uh, racial segregation was an evil system in his mind and one that he was determined Uh, not to adjust to, and that he uh, did not allow his children to adjust to in the sense that he always taught us that uh, we, even though we had to face the reality of the system, that uh, there was a sense of somebodiness within us that always kept us moving uh, toward the sense of dignity and self-respect that any human being should have. I'm thinking, of course, of how this hurts the white child as well as the black child. The hurt, the separation, the hurt is to both, really, is it not? Yes, it certainly is. Uh, uh, Segregation injures the soul or the mind of the segregated as well as the segregator. 
It gives uh, the segregator a false sense of superiority, and it so often leaves the segregated with a false sense of inferiority. So it does scar the soul of both. It's the jailer and the jail, both equally injured. Yes, yes, exactly. Isn't the phrase you used, uh, hate hurts the hater as much as the hated? Yes, yes. Hate is a dangerous force, and it is an injurious force because it uh, injures uh, the object of hate as well as the subject of hate. It injures the hater as well as the hated. And it's very interesting that uh, many of the psychiatrists are saying to us now that the strange things that happen in the subconscious and many of the inner conflicts are rooted in hate. And this is why many are saying love or perish. You're thinking about this element of the revolutionary aspects of love. You yourself, when you went to Moorhead, Morehouse College with Dr. Mays as president, your things, your growth, Thoreau played a role. You, your father, then Thoreau. Yes. Well, uh, Thoreau played a very significant role in that I came to see when I first read his essay on civil disobedience, which I read my second year in Morehouse College, that uh, non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And that has lived with me ever since. Uh, I think this is the, the most uh, uh, moving or the most important influence of Thoreau in my life. I'm thinking of the thread that has created Martin Luther King, Thoreau, and then there was Gandhi. Your reading of Gandhi, about yes. individual man as an end rather than a means. Yes. Well, Gandhi uh, uh, by far uh, did more than any human being to lift the love ethic of the New Testament uh, of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, to uh, the powerful level of socio-political action. Uh, and uh, I often say that uh, I received a great deal of the inspiration for this movement from Gandhi because he provided the kind of operational technique that uh, made the, the love ethic a reality in uh, so many dimensions. And uh, I think uh, Gandhi certainly stands as one of the truly great persons of history and uh, that the whole nonviolent movement that we see in the United States today uh, is greatly influenced by Mahatma Gandhi and particularly the revolutionary work that he did in India. Thinking of love is revolutionary, love uh, as, an, as a technique for social transformation. Love yes, exactly. And this. Uh, on the whole, we had seen love merely in terms of uh, individual relations. Uh, and the love ethic usually was thought of as something that applied between individuals as they thought in the context of their relationship with each other. But uh, what Gandhi did was to lift the love ethic to this, uh, this great level of, uh, of social transformation so that not only must an individual love an individual, but a whole racial group must love uh, another racial group, and that somehow 
through this love process organized into mass action, we can bring about powerful social change. Yeah, I'm thinking as we're sitting here with Mahalia listening to us and nodding, I want to ask you later on about the matter of humor and call and response and your friend Ralph Abernathy, too. Uh, you've never lost this. Perhaps you can ask this now. I want to come to scriptures in a moment, influencing this matter of humor through adversity. I know a close friend of yours is Dr. Ralph, Reverend Ralph Abernathy, who I think is one of the funniest in a very wonderful way speakers I've heard for years. Yes. Well, I think you've, uh, you've got to have the ability to engage in creative laughter in order to live amid uh, difficulties and tension. Uh, if you can't laugh in life, uh, you're a very miserable human being. And I think a great deal of truth often comes through laughter. And some people have developed the talent uh, to get this truth over to many people by laughing the truth into them and out of them. So that uh, I think humor is most important in getting at truth and getting people to uh, understand and often to uh, rise above the despair which can surround them. So this uh, laughter through adversity, the humor of adversity to survive. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. That it, uh, it is often necessary to uh, laugh in order to survive. I think this is what uh, has happened to the Negro. So often uh, people misinterpret the laughter of the Negro. It's a deeper laughter. It's the kind of laughter that molds a creative optimism out of of very pessimistic situations. And it is the laughter that kept the Negro slave going amid a very trying and difficult and bewildering situation. I'm thinking sometimes I hear this laughter in the midst of a bitter phrase or a bitter memory, there is a laughter that comes through, I suppose, to enable them to survive the particular agony of that memory a moment. There's a laugh. It's a mm. bitter laugh. At the same time, it's a laugh that enables one to survive. Yes, yes. Well, I think you're exactly right. And without it, uh, it would be a very miserable situation, and we would be a miserable people. Let's start. Let's oh, oh. Dr. King, you know, we hear the phrase extremism used so much, and perhaps used in the wrong way sometimes, too. Sometimes they equate the Southern Christian leadership movement with the White Citizens Council. You used the phrase once when you were in jail, when some pastor spoke to you about moving too fast, use the phrase about Calvary and creative extremism. Would you mind just expanding on that, just a bit, telling us a bit about that? Well, yes, I, I think the question is not uh, whether one is an extremist, but what kind of extremist he happens to be. Uh, uh, certainly the great people of history, the great men and women of history, have been extremists, but they were creative extremists. They were extremists for love. They were extremists for justice. Amos was an extremist for justice. Uh, Jesus was an extremist for love and goodwill. The Apostle Paul was an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, so one, the question happens to be in the final analysis, or should be, uh, what kind of extremist does one happen to be? And too often people are the negative extremists who commit themselves to negative ends and to improper goals and to things that are not uh, morally right. That Friday on Calvary you spoke about, that was Christ between the two extremists, 
the two thieves. Yes, this was well, the symbol of our time. Yes, I certainly think so. Dr. King, I know you have to rush off on so many of your engagements. How you do it, I don't know. Thank you very much as we pass through here, stopping by Mahalia's. I hope this is chapter one, and congratulations on behalf of all of us as being the Nobel Prize winner for 1964. Thank you very kindly. Mahalia, thank you. Thank you.